Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. So my guest uh, today is uh, Dan Labad, Chief Executive of the Crown Estate, with its £15 billion worth in assets, former Chief Executive of Lendlease in the UK, um, where he oversaw lots of projects in Europe as well as uh, some in Asia, former Chief Executive of the Hornery Institute, which is a very civic-minded kind of initi- initiative set up by one of the founders or the early Chief Executives of Lendlease. Dan Labad, you're very, very welcome. But everybody will want me to ask you first, especially outside the UK, what is the Crown Estate? What do you do? The Crown Estate, quite simply, was over 260 years ago. Um, it manages uh, independently the assets held by the Crown um, as Crown, so not their personal assets, uh, for the benefit of the country. So the earnings from the use of those assets um, go to Treasury. And there's three types of assets. One is uh, rural, uh, one is urban, and one is marine. Uh, so it looks sounds small, but it's big. Uh, and our role is to enable that, not just for today, but given we've been around for 260 years, we need to ensure that we're going to be around for another 260 years. So you've uh, how long have you been? Doing this, you've been doing this quite a short period of time. And are you the first uh, Australian to have run the Crown Estate? Is that? Uh, I'm, I'm not, not sure. I'm assuming. I'm assuming I am. Um, uh, so I'm assuming so. But we might have to check. Well, that, yeah, but I'm assuming I'd so. Yes. I'd be pleased if it was the second Australian. <laughs> but I doubt that it, it was. But how long have you been doing it now? Uh, just over 12 months. Uh, so started just before COVID uh, hit early early 2020. Uh, and, uh, you know, within, I think, sort of eight or nine weeks into the role, uh, we were doing it like this. So uh, that's been that's been the journey. So I'm, it's an astounding time to begin a new big job, let's be fair. Um, and I'm sure there were challenges from the way in which that had to be done. But I noticed that you turned in a decent profit in your uh, annual report that I've uh, just had a look through. So um, you've you've managed to turn in a decent year how, how was the year how was it what you expected it must be profoundly different to be fair but how was the year for the organization i think the year, the year was you know a clear demonstration of the resilience of the portfolio um you know we suffered uh like everybody else um in the retail and office space which is a large proportion of our, our holdings um uh, we had to support customers through the year. Uh, you know, obviously Australia right now, as we record this, is in the middle of a lockdown. Of one uh, in uh, recent months, but one that lasted on and off for over a year, really. Uh, several lockdowns over a year, um, <clears throat> but the diversification of the business shone through. Uh, rural performed well. Our marine holdings performed well, and the property holdings, notwithstanding. Um, the downturn in rent still performed well on a relative basis. So with that, we demonstrate, you know, the resilience that a portfolio of its age uh, you'd expect it to show. It doesn't take away the fact that we have some big challenges ahead uh, and it's going to take uh, not, not, only, not only in what we do and how we think about business, but also what the market continues to throw at us as we navigate our way out of the pandemic and deal with, you know, issues such as climate change and technology disruption. But as we stand here today, we're pleased with the resilience of the portfolio. Before we get into some of the issues I want to talk about, I'd like to talk about the experience of actually running an organization essentially online. In the, in the, I mean, did that turn out to be, I mean, unusual and different 
front, but uh, how did it work out for you? And did you have to do certain things to make it work? Uh, I think firstly, coming back to your earlier question, Tim, I think interestingly, you know, when you take, when you're in a chief executive role, um, you don't get to decide what comes at you. You know, that's not something that's not something that you know you, you you have discretion over. It's part of the part of the deal is you deal with what comes at you, and every chief executive uh, knows that. And and you know who knows in the world we live in today what's going to come next. So you know you take it as it comes. And you know we we, we talk we talk the pandemic as it came. Um, I think it's one of those things when you look back after however long it's been, 15, 16, 17 months. And you think, oh, how, how did we how did we manage through that? But as you're experiencing at the moment, when the crisis hits and it requires a change in behaviours, like working from home, like going online, you just get on with it. And it's human nature as such. And sometimes I think, you know, when when we don't think about it too much and we just have to move to it, uh, we 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 perform sometimes better than when when you get to that, you know, and you have to think about things um uh too much i think it's just again a human condition sort of reacts we did that and um you know we we innovated along the way in the way that we worked in the way that we shared in the way that we um helped people with challenges around working from home and the constraints work-life balance mental health issues you know you name it um you know we we, we jumped in into it and did the best we could best we could and i think that was a, the other thing you know this is not going to be perfect what we've got to do is enter into a conversation with each other, be kind to each other, and ensure that we're trying to make the best of a very challenging situation, as opposed to, you know, trying to pretend, you know, it's going to be a pleasure, a pleasant experience. Um, so, so that, you know, that's what we did, and and we've come through that. We've come through that quite well. Um, in terms of some of the tools we used, um, myself or one of my senior team host a weekly town hall, um, allowing for anonymous questions, which is fantastic. So it is really like a town hall because you're dealing with questions live and you're getting you know all sorts of things coming through from those that are really pleased with the way things are going and are happy with the way that we're leading through things we, we, you know through to others that are, are challenged and are struggling and you, and you and it really gives you a feel and what it taught me is you know boy as in leadership roles do we do we struggle sometimes with understanding who we represent in real time and the anon anonymity of those questions coming through week in week out and representing that broad range was a fantastic window into the real-time soul of an organisation as to what it's feeling. We could react to that in real time as management much better than waiting for a six-monthly pulse survey or, um, you know, trying to gain direct feedback from people live. Uh, the anonymity really, really helped in that regard, um, being able to do that week in, week out. I'm obviously using digital uh, in the way that we have, um, calling up people and ensuring that we're using different touch points. And the other thing, program in more than than um than we would need to have done otherwise is having some fun you know having a laugh laughing at ourselves because i think in these situations life can become incredibly serious which adds to the burden and just trying to relieve the pressure and just having a laugh about some of the experiences some of the mistakes some of the mishaps um you know is is just part of it and that that has helped also I think also the I, I found that all really interesting, and I think also you won't be surprised to hear me say that I I think it's great that um, how inclusive you can be using some of these tools is kind of weirdly unexpected. You know, they they seem alienating at, at some level. You know, and it is nice to see people. You know, but another level, there are certain things that you can certain conversations you can only have through the kind of you know anonymity of of, of digital or something. You know, so I'm, I'm really delighted to hear you actually thought there was some 
improvement in a way, in a way that you communicate and involve staff. In this yeah, there's, no, there's no doubt that um, team building, customer service, innovation, creativity, yeah. Yeah. You know, having, now, having now lived sort of mo more, 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 most of 12 months offline, uh, being, being offline at the office and, and on computers, and then coming back to it, that juxtaposition has really demonstrated, you know, the difference certainly in this part of the world and, and you know, touch points are really, really important, which we can get on to. Well, um, yeah. I mean, I'm for, I mean, I surprised myself by being as positive as I was about the online experience because I've largely, you know, been concerned about that the, some of the benefits of actual physically meeting people will go away and cities were meant to be yes. these, these places where you interacted. So I'd be, you know, I think we'll get into that. I just want to pause about something. One of the things that's clear to me always when I talk to you, Dan, is that you bring a set of values to bear on whatever you work. Some of them picked up in your, in your life when you grew up and some of them picked up in places you worked in. When I first met you, God, uh, 12, 13 years ago, working on the Olympics, you said to me once, you said, um, I, what you've got to understand, Tim, because I was uh, older than you and a bit of a skeptic. And I said, and you said something like, for my generation, green isn't green is non-negotiable, you see. And I remember thinking, wow, that's quite, that's quite radical for somebody who's going to be like a chief executive. You know, maybe that maybe the coming generation is going to be more radical about these things than I than I expected. Now you've never ever backed down from this kind of leadership approach to to the greening of anywhere that you've you've worked in. Is that have you have you brought that attitude in to the Crown Estate as well? Yes, uh, you know, I, I am who I am, you know, and um, <clears throat> that doesn't change. I'm far from perfect, but, you know, I, like everybody else, I have, you know, a lot of flaws, but, um, but I, you know, I'm committed to, you know, nudge the world in the right direction. If you spoke to me when I was an idealistic 20-year-old, you know, I was all in the world, <laughs> now I'm about nudging it in the right direction. You know, after you go around the block a few times, yeah, yeah. You, know, you 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 know you get the you know you get the you get the drill and uh, and and but I, I haven't lost the I haven't lost the ideal I haven't lost the the belief that you know if you have the if you have the opportunity to be educated and you you have the opportunity to live in a country like Australia or the UK um, you know you need to be a force for good and and I think sometimes the system um, drives a mediocrity that that we are blind to and i think you know the pandemic has shown us some of that um we just get busy we just get busy and we get parochial uh and and i and i think that interestingly the search for meaning i don't want to get too philosophical uh on on us but the search for meaning i think has become a lot more important a priority in a lot of people's lives as a result of the last 15 16 months global level uh and at a at a personal level uh, and so, yes, I still, I still sort of bring that style to my leadership, to who I am. But equally, I think, I think the world is there also. I think that you know, the, the, I'm not, I'm not having those glaze over conversations as much as I used to all those years ago, uh, where you know you talk about this stuff and you know people would pat me on the head and send send me on my way. Um, you know, the, 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 those days have changed. So yes, yeah, so I still, I still very much believe in that. And I also think, just to finish off the point, the difference between our conversation thirteen years ago, when I had grown up, I think at that stage I was in my late thirties, and 
I'd, I'd grown up, I discovered sustainability when I was in my 20s. I was able to educate myself on it uh, through, my, through my work experiences and, and was fortunate enough to make my way into leadership roles where I could influence it, influence others. And, and you know, um, young people today don't have that opportunity. I mean, the, the, the report that was released yesterday by the International Committee on Climate Change, it, it says, you know, we, we, we are, we are going to potentially hit 1.5 degrees by 2040 or sooner. Now, if you're if you're a twenty-something-year-old today, um, you don't have the time to make it into leadership and start to affect the mitigations that might ensure that we mitigate and and slow that warming down. Um, whereas we do. So, not only is my is my belief in these areas driven by a personal desire to change. I think there is now an obvious demand for it. An obvious, an obvious requirement for it from all leaders, from all businesses, from all government. I think, um, and I feel strongly about that. I think that's right. I think also the your point, I think there's two kinds of opportunity in a way. One is a big opportunity around the world feels different. Uh, conversation, your point, conversations that we couldn't have had, you know, two years ago seem quite acceptable now. People are, are, are willing to hear some radical stuff in a way I don't think we, we would have had an opportunity to discussed two years ago but specifically i'll give you an example you know i'm obviously working grimshaw architects um where a lot of people are, are reconsidering uh, and in your world you'll be doing the same their office space for example and there's yes, an opportunity yes. in reconsidering what an office is going forward to make it far more energy efficient than we ever would have thought we could have done you know uh, and the opportunity will be there clients will be there and the market and the values seem to be lining up in a way that I wouldn't have thought was going to happen two years ago. Is that your feeling too? Absolutely, yes. I think I think that's right. I think, and I, again, I, I think about it not, not just in the terms of sentiment, but all, even even science. But let's think about it in financial terms. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you if you don't invest in greening and um, your real estate assets from uh, carbon, the cost of carbon, uh, and the cost of cost of obsolescence today. Uh, the reality is, if you don't start doing that today, the reality is that that's going to affect you financially. It's going to affect the valuation of your portfolio. That is coming, you know. And and um, and I think and I think there is more risk in risking obsolescence than there is in being progressive and taking some leaps of faith in these areas moving forward. And I think that's the equation that's shifted. I think, you know, obsolescence or, or the status quo and re the reality is this, this stuff is not going to have an impact. Uh, it's, it's not going to affect our portfolio or our business. I think, I think that's what shifted. I think now um, there is a, you know, there is, there is, you know, that risk, that risk trade-off now is, is changing, which is, which is key. I agree with this. I, I hadn't realised myself until I did some research recently about the the views of estate agents, you know, about, about office space and all this kind of stuff. And I had not realised the extent to which things like ESG were being, you know, marked up or down in the market. You know, in terms of uh, where hard-headed, very unsentimental real estates are going, is to say your office won't be, won't be worth as much unless you do X, Y, and Z. Um, in terms of you know, um, you know, mitigating climate or your contribution to even societal objectives. So it does seem to me that the market has moved to come behind some of these uh, objectives. And I think that is a big shift. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, you, you, 
you don't feel like eccentric. You know, 12, 30 years ago, one might have felt a bit eccentric about some of these things. But now everybody, I hope, I think, is going in this direction. Let's do some specifics with you, right? Let's do, I was very struck before this interview that uh, Regent Street, we need to tell the world, you, you own Regent Street, <laughs> which is a yes, great- and, Ox and Oxford, Oxford oh, Circus. And, and all those things. Right? So you've been doing some great work. I, I've uh, on like shared streets approach. So let's do some, let's do some Regent Street. Let's do, um, I'm interested also in your shopping assets because I'm because they're regional as well, aren't they? And I, I'm very interested in that. Yeah. I also want to talk about the fact that you own 12 miles of the English seabed and there's some of the progressive stuff you've been doing about uh, wind and uh, climate stuff, which is very interesting. So uh, let's start with Regency. What have, been up to, what have you been doing to one of, the, one of London's great streets, Dan? You, you have to think of the Crown Estate in terms of uh, our role as being a catalytic agent you know our role is to you know again be be a force force for good um and we we have that opportunity because of you know who we are uh and that that doesn't make us better or worse than anybody we're just different because of because of who we are and um and so when you think about central london global city uh well you know and the, and the, and the goal is to keep it and maintain it as a global city if you talk to all the stakeholders involved in london you know, that is key. The, the, the pandemic was a huge shock. Uh, I think I've before 50 million people walking down Regent Street 18 months ago. Um, that, <laughs> you know, way off. It was like a ghost town, like a movie set for most of last year. And um, and it forces you to think about, well, you know, we need to we need to fight. We need to we need to earn patronage. We need to earn the commute. We need to earn, you know, those things as opposed to it just happening. Uh, and we wanted to experiment with with Westminster, um, the, the 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 local council, uh, as to how do we give how do we give Regent Street back to the people uh, by looking at the proportion of vehicular traffic versus pedestrian traffic, and that required the notion of moving it from one lane in each direction, sorry, two lanes in each direction to one lane in each direction, which is what we've done as a pilot. Uh, and that has proven thus far incredibly popular. Uh, we also look to green Regent Street. And this is, again, I think one of, the, one of the things, one of the methods that we believe in moving forward in the way that we think about strategy and also in the way that we think about trying new things, and that is piloting, you know, and, you know, this notion of, you know, agile delivery, learning, failing fast, killing those things that fail, growing those things that don't. Uh, getting a lot of feedback in the process so that we're consulting with communities and, and others to understand how people feel about things. Um, and, you know, it's a city experiment and, and, and it will continue to be um, where we announced a partnership with, with Westminster City Council, so on Oxford Circus, to look at the pedestrianisation of part of that, um, which, again, is all about uh, how we think about how we think about Regent Street and Oxford Circus, uh, not only as a global as a global benchmark, but also ensuring that it is the destination that Londoners and that people across the UK need it to be moving forward. Again, because I think we'll be competing for patronage. You know, I think about the other thing to, to think about growing up in Australia. Um, I remember seeing, you know, pictures of Oxford Circus and Regent Street and obviously all the other ma major landmarks, uh, the palace and other things. And they were my anchor tenant into the UK. You know, these, these places are important. They're important on so many levels, so many levels. So I walk, I walk down this street uh, on most days when I'm in the office. I'm in the office a few days a week at the moment. And, and you feel, gee, I have, uh, you know, after 260 years, I have this 
this small period of time where I have some influence over what is the centre of a global city um, and, and I'm filled with fear of not doing enough by the time I move on uh, so, that, so that we can ensure that it retains the integrity and the presence and the symbolism that, 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 it, that, it, that it deserves and that, that the world needs it to be and that the UK needs it to be. So that's how I think about, you know, that particular place, if that makes sense. Well, I've, I've put a video online that you did about some of the kind of shared streets and, as you were saying, narrowing the roads. And it's and I, I said to people, you might think, oh, it's, it's, it's Regent Street that's got nothing to do with us. But the principles that you use in the Regent Street experiment and the collaboration with the council can be done in all sorts of places, it strikes me. I want to go back to your phrase I, I liked, um, earning the commute. Um, I, I think this is, uh, we know, you, you've touched on it already, there's a, it's a big international experiment uh, in analogue versus digital and homeworking versus, you know, central city stuff. Um, you, you and I have both been through a period of the return of the city. Uh, where, you know, when I was much, uh, I'm older than you, but when I was younger, a place like Melbourne, inner Melbourne, was pretty empty at weekends. Uh, same was true of most regional cities in the UK. Mm. Um, and they all came back. You know, city centres became the thing. Lots of people set up businesses in the knowledge economy near CBDs. CBDs, important Sydney CBD, for example, as you will know very well, creates about 7% of Australia's national wealth, you know. So these places are quite important. On the other hand, we've seen a really radical experiment in home working, and it doesn't all seem to me as though it's all going to go back in the in the bottle. So where do you see this landing? And you've got a pretty direct interest in making the centre as vivid as possible. Where, where, where do you see this going, this sort of home working city office future? How do you see it? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I think that's the that's the whole that's the whole thing. I think we we <clears throat> There's no doubt that there will be permanent structural change. I think that's that's a truism. I think that's 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 the reality. The extent to which and in what areas exactly, I think, is yet to unfold. Um, and this comes back to my point about an agility in the way that you think about strategy, an agility in the way that you think about your products and services. And I think coming at it from a property lens, it's something that the property industry has to learn. You know, we haven't had to innovate at this pace before and and so my starting thesis is that is that we are going to be dealing with with structural change and impacts on our portfolios in a way that's accelerated relative to anything we've ever experienced we have to be careful not to get into the habit that we've been in of writing fixed strategy for five years and another fixed strategy i think you know, I think those those days are gone. That's hard for a lot of organisations because often markets require that. Um, and we need to set our set of principles and get closer to customers uh, and understand their journeys and go on those journeys with them. Um, and in terms of, you know, if you think about the, the, the examples that we're using uh, of sort of property places, um, precincts, um, city centre locations like London or, or around, around countries, places like Sydney around countries, I think you've got to start with one, you know, a, a first principle, which is we have to fight for patronage. We have to fight for users, for people to want this to be a destination. Let's just not assume because I think, again, picking up the you know, precautionary principle here, 
uh, and and the fear of using obsolescence as a galvanizing sort of driver to move away from. What should we be experimenting with in order to determine how we activate and create something that in some ways is ephemeral and can adjust and can adapt, but is ready to accept the world in whatever form that can take? Um, and a good example is exactly what we're talking about in terms of returning to the office. Now, we, you know, in this country have moved from being encouraged to work from home to um, being given the option to go back to the office. Nowhere near as many people have returned than we expected. Uh, I think we're at 20 to 25% across, across the board from just using round figures, broadly speaking. Um, and one, there's still a fear because obviously in places like the UK, the Delta variant, is still omnipresent uh, and and people feel uh, that the commute or the office environment isn't really ready yet. Uh, and secondly, um, I think there is a structural change where people are feeling more productive at home, they're more comfortable at home. And so will that shift, will we see once, if the pandemic threat abates, will we see people just, you know, come on in? Hopefully we'll see more of it, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of workplaces are starting to set policies around two to three days a week and that type of thing. So so we will definitely see some of it. But I think you've got to start with we need to whatever happens, make sure that we're creating the best destinations possible. Businesses, you know, hosting their offices in our locations being another. Um, we need to make sure that we're working incredibly hard to give them all the optionality they need to make it as easy as possible to bridge whatever divide there is between working from home disproportionately uh, and turning that into working from the office more proportionally. And, and, I, and, and that's the, I guess, that attitude we're taking to everything. Let's not assume, let's not allow optimism bias to creep in. Let's, let's use obsolescence as our, galvanizing, as our galvanizing driver and think creatively uh, about how we build a future that's fit for purpose for our customers, and again, that's very different for property. I think certainly not at the not at the pace that we're talking about. I, I look, I'm fascinated by all this, and I think this is a really big international discussion. We're having the same in well, loads of cities I'm, I'm working in, um, and there's a couple of things that strike me about this. One is, um, I, I was a bit concerned. There was a kind of fatalism that uh, it's all over, cities are all over, the CBDs are finished, you know, and it's all never going to go back exact. Well, it's never going to back, go back exactly as it was. But then in a sense, as I said earlier on, cities change fundamentally several times in my lifetime. And they, and I think we, we have to understand that they do this kind of thing. And there's a yin and yang. The issue, I think, becomes who's going to be using the city. It might be, for example, people working a couple of days at home, a couple of days in the office. That, I think, is definitely going to happen. People are talking about the youthification of the city centre. You know that there'll be younger, younger people uh, in the in the office, as it were. Maybe you know there may be a demography around it. Mixed uses, much more mixed use town centres going forward than we've seen. I think that's right. And the other thing, and you alluded, you've alluded to what you did in Regent Street, which I think the public-private collaboration around this, you know, reinvention of the city centre is really profoundly important. And I and I'm. I'm looking to everybody to step up a bit, you know, uh, going back, because I think that I think imagination and collaboration will be required. What, what do you think? You know, if I start on the last point, partnerships um, between the private sector, the third sector and the public sector, incredibly important. Uh, and I've always been a massive proponent of partnerships. I've always been in them for whatever reason. Um, 
and have always, I, th I think, in some ways forged part of my career on translating between the different parties. And as I come into the Crown Estate, where we sit you know, right in the middle of the private sector, government uh, and others, uh, I, I've really, well, if you said to me what's one of my, my biggest learnings in the last 12 to 18 months, it is the different language that government uses relative to the private sector. And I think a lot of things often break down in translation. Um, like all diversity challenges, you know, that, that is a key element, a key contributor to, 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 to breakdown often. And, uh, and I think it's no different to, to the diversity between the way the government operates, the way the private sector operates. And I think it's the same in places like Australia as it is in the UK. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think collaboration is fundamental. I don't think any sector has the answer to these challenges. And, and I think the challenge is running away from us. Let's, not, let's also not sort of, you know, gild the lily here. You know, we're dealing with a runaway train here. You know, it's, we, need, we need to pull our collective strengths because there's not, this is not about one party winning and another one losing, whether that's between businesses or whether that's between government and business. This is about everyone winning or everyone losing. And that's what we have to, that's what we have to remember here. Um, there'll be a time and there's a place for obviously market dynamics, but I think we need to break down some of the market barriers to cooperation that I think inhibit, you know, collective, collective growth environmental movement for example that's a humanitarian challenge before before it's a a market opportunity net zero humanitarian challenge before it's a, a market opportunity and 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 we need to be sharing knowledge we need to be helping each other so so i think partnerships are partnerships are, are fundamental um what was the i just want to come back what was the first part of your question Oh, it was more about. Um, do you think CBDs will be reimagined? Yeah, so, so the role of the city. Yeah, the role of city. I, I do. I do. I think. You now they, and again, it's one area where I'm not going to sit back and sort of say I don't know. I think they have to. I think they, the melting pot of cities and what they do, what they do in terms of uh, driving human progression, uh, bringing in diversity and having it mix like nowhere else. And all the benefits that come from from that tolerance and ideas and and patents and breakthroughs and you know I mean um, you know progress with regards to um, biases and 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 all those things I mean it's 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 where you know we we wouldn't have some of the progressive things that we've got in the cities uh, we wouldn't have invented and created some of the things we have some of the social progress that we've we've got around the world if it wasn't for cities uh and i and i can't i don't think that again i might be wrong but i don't think that the digital world can replace that uh certainly not at this point and and i think but again i don't think cities can equally sit there and just be complacent and and hope that organically they are just going to make it happen I think that city planners and, and, and leaders of cities and leaders of businesses that operate in cities, you know, have a role to curate um, and not curate from A to Z, but curate to the extent that we, we empower cities to be what they need to be for their populations. I think we need to think about cities in a different way because, again, the organic approach means that people who come to cities come to cities. I think we need to think about how we bring more diversity into cities. Uh, one of the things that we're thinking about as 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 we look at our holdings uh, is how do we ensure for everybody? How do we ensure the products and services that we create in the form of our city products are for everybody, not just for some? You know that that is really really important. So I think there's some benefits in being forced into curation mode 
uh, as opposed to, you know, rent collection mode, if, if, if that makes sense. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. I always like the word curation. I think it's the it's a it's a word that uh, you and I should force out there because the uh, yeah. curating our, our our cities going forward is going to be a task we really need to do much better than we've been doing in the past. But also, I really like the and I share the passion around this idea of what cities have done. You know, sort of the word civilization and the word civility both come from the word city. You know, they are the same thing, and we will lose them at our at our cost. Uh, just uh, even on the commercial side, I've been quite surprised that uh, I'd be interested in your views about this. The 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 sit there's a Sydney city premium for Australia, which is essentially the population of Aust- of New South Wales is. Um, uh, it's uh, 60, 63% of the population of New South Wales as a state is in Sydney, in one city, but 71% of the GDP uh, is created in one city, i.e. there's a Sydney urban premium. And I think the those people who are kind of anti-city and jumping up and down saying, is it marvellous, you know, the end of the city is nigh, isn't that great? You're going to have to tell me whether, whether the wealth generation that comes from agglomeration is going to, going to be recreated um, yeah. on online for me for me uh, i want to read I, I definitely know we have to reinvent the offer i definitely know that we have to re-equate people who are good, good about cities and we have to change them but we can't kind of do without them no we can't but i think there is a there is a an element in what you've said that concerns me and this comes back to again what we can learn from the past i think when you look at cities in the way that they have become concentrated wealth creators i'm not necessarily sure that is good either i think that you know the 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 role the role of government in looking at the system of cities that make up make up a nation make up a state make up a place is is fundamentally important and that and that that has not necessarily been in place uh, and you know what has happened is there's been this again using the word galvanizing of and concentration of wealth and value creation in one place. I'm not sure that it that 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 proportionality is right. I think I think the the distribution of wealth wealth across countries could be much better managed moving forward. And again, learnings from. I mean, and I know you're point. a proponent. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's a very fair point. I mean, I, I I think that especially if you come from the UK and you've seen it where. You know, London's great, and but it's kind of the only game in the country to some degree. Uh, you know, of the 11 regions of the UK, only two make money for the country or something. That can't go on. So we have to reinvent the vitality of our regional cities too. So maybe this is an opportunity to do some of that. Um, and, I, and I'm all for that. I just wanted to be organised. I'm, I'm sort of, despite the fact that people, Dan, they look at me and think, I can't possibly be organised. My brain is pretty organised. <laughs> I'm trying to work out how we organise the, the the reinvention of the important global city cities that we have, but also use the opportunity to replenish and re-strengthen the kind of regional cities. So let's do a bit of that because you've got a regional portfolio, right? You're, uh, you've... you've uh, I've got quite a lot of assets. Some of them in retail, I think, uh, out in the regions. Could you say what they are? We have 17 um, <clears throat> locations around the country. Um, I'm not going to name them all, but, uh, you know, very, a vast portfolio, a big portfolio. Uh, and, uh, and um, you know, they, 
are in you know various states at the moment because you can imagine what the pandemic did. And I don't want to use the pandemic as an excuse because before that, digital disruption was affecting them. Yeah. Um, and and um, and we're looking at all that at the moment as part of our strategic review. We also have a big uh, strategic land holding. Uh, one of the big the big challenges in this country is is housing. Uh, and one of the things that we're reviewing at the moment is the role we could play in supporting um, mixed-use development, but predominantly residential-led across the country using our strategic land holdings and the role we could play there to support um, progressive outcomes in, in that area. Um, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, there is a big role. Now, the other part of this is thinking about the green agenda, the net zero agenda, and and linking that to industrial policy and ensuring that you know we're building supply chains we're building industries we're building jobs uh, we're setting vocational educa education and training um, up effectively to to be fit for purpose for you know the renewal that's that's emerging in this country uh, that's going to be around for a very very long time um, off the back of net zero uh, so, so you know, all that is in the mix at the moment uh, as to as to what not just us, but a number of parties, including government, are thinking about moving. So forward. you've got a an opportunity, and you've got a. I know you think about these things in a broad way, but um, to use your land assets in some of these regional locations to try more mixed use development, but also to try and create opportunities for, I guess, local business and local communities as well. So that's really important you you will you should uh, listen to one of our podcasts because we've got um, we had a great interview with Jonathan Rose who's a really progressive developer in New York and uh, you'd I, mean, I know you, I'm sure you know of him but you'd like this kind of work that he's got uh, mixed use centers and he's calling them communities of opportunity um, yeah, yeah. because they have kind of a, a combination of some affordable uh, housing together with uh, links with schools colleges and stuff you know I remember Dan when we were doing when you were doing the leading on the uh, athletes village, one of the things you were most concerned about was to try and get the, the a great school leadership in place for that place. So, you know, you're very consistent now in thinking about these things in a, in a kind of broader way. And you've got some assets that might you might be able to put in the right direction. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we all live the legacy in major cities of people with good intentions like us trying this, you know, 40, 50 years ago, that wasn't that long ago, and, and they're not working out. So, We've all got to think about legacy, you know, it's important. Um, and um, it's important to push to get these things right. But but I do I do think that, um, and I've said this, you know, you and I've talked about this before, the notion of placemaking and health and education and, uh, um, you know, everything else uh, on, on, on the government agenda being separate and mutually exclusive is, is not right. You know, these things are all absolutely, absolutely linked. So the... Uh, our portfolio moving forward is thinking holistically, you know, about these things. So, for example, when we talk about you know, a lot of work we're doing in offshore wind, uh, and and uh, you know, we've just announced in the last you'd like this team, we've announced in the last two or three weeks, we're running four uh, four pilot projects, demonstration projects uh, in a technology known as floating wind. So, um, right. the the vast majority of the wind offshore wind in the UK is fixed wind, meaning meaning fixed pylon in shallow waters into the seabed. Um, in order to go into deeper waters, you have to employ a technology that comes out of oil and gas, which is floating wind. So it's anchored, but it's not fixed, uh, which is amazing technology um, that's getting off the ground. And it's important because 
uh, we're going to be limited by the world will be limited by uh, sea landscape in shallow waters for, 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 for offshore wind if we can't make fl uh, floating wind technology work. Uh, so we're running four pilot projects, four demonstration projects in the Celtic Sea. Yes, um, and they're hugely, they you know hugely so. But you know what we need to think, what we're thinking about there, working in partnership with um, uh, the Welsh government, is how how we how that leads to industrial development and how that leads to other things and how we can help how we can help working in partnership to make to make that happen. I think it's fantastic, Dan, and I think what is great in the conversation is that. Uh, the idea that there are chain effects that you can do you know if you think about what you're doing in the broader sense you know you can create value in so many different ways and i think that uh you, know, you still have to create value in a conventional economic sense for your some of your major shareholders and i'm sure of that but they but they a you will and do and b they also like the other value that you will create which is you know value for communities value for small businesses and value for the environment, I think. So all that I think is, is great. In fact, every time I talk to you, I'm always jealous about the job you currently have done. You know, it's the, uh, it's cause you're, <laughs> but you are essentially um, using these, these great assets and tools for really good stuff, it seems to me. So I, I, wanna, I wanna develop, I wanna ask you a little bit more about the, the wind stuff because I think it'll blow people's mind the idea that you run, a, you run an organization that actually essentially has access to 12 the first 12 miles of the uh of the of the sea line and that you're developing this really interesting stuff around energy and wind bringing a lot of your interests together so you are you excited about that very excited about it um you know it's it's again um <clears throat> a, a wonderful opportunity um we are we are fortunate to be you know working in an environment where government policy is aligned and uh and what we've done over the last 20 years is taken what has been a, a niche nascent industry. You know, the first, the first wind turbines were going up offshore when I was discovering sustainability back in the 1990s, early 2000s. Wow. Uh, you know, and here we are 20 years later uh, and we have an industry that is now self-sufficient. Uh, we're on a trajectory to achieve the delivery of uh, 40 gigawatts, certainly having the pipeline 40 gigawatts that could be delivered over the next 10 years, uh, meaning making it, turning it into generating capacity. At the moment, uh, there's about 10 gigawatt, gigawatts generating. The idea is to add another 30 gigawatts to that to make it 40 gigawatts over the next 10 years. Uh, a lot of work, work to do to get there, but everyone's fighting for that. Uh, and then beyond that, with the likes of floating wind technology and future leasing rounds of fixed wind, um, you know, the, 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 the marine environment is going to play you know a big role in addition to that uh looking to the future past floating wind uh there's obviously carbon capture and storage yeah. which has a way to go but but that's a serious technology now that uh that we're looking at with with partners and beyond that there's hydrogen uh so so you know to have uh the opportunity as an organization to play a, a role in that is a huge privilege a huge honor I think it's uh, very exciting, and I think that combination of you're also involved. I think in a in a, in a you've set up a forum. I think to uh, around carbon capture and wind um, to kind of l l lobby for people to be interested in this. So this is all all great stuff. Well, right? part so part of part of the role part of the role that we we play is to bring parties together. It comes back to my point about collaborations and partnerships. Um, none of these solutions are easy so if you take you know you think about you know the the marine environment and people may assume that oh it's vast well it's not it's incredibly busy you have 
navigation, you have defense, you have cables, you have biodiversity and other environmental considerations. Uh, and so there are trade-offs that need to be navigated. And unless you have everybody at the table working through those, um, you know, you're not going to get through and, and, and open up opportunities for, for renewable for renewables. Um, so, so we have, you know, a number of forums that we, we are involved in with others uh, on how you coordinate spatial planning of the seabed right through to, as you say, you know, carbon capture and technology and some of the barriers that exist with regards to breakthroughs that we have to make over the next 10 years and beyond with an eye to the short term and an eye to the long term, uh, which which is important. I think the other thing as well, Tim, just coming back to your point about, um, you know, we're doing the financial stuff, you know, because, you know, those that know me know that I'm very commercial, but but I don't I don't see them as an and and an all. I see them as and 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 because and I always, um, I always um, have a go at people internally that sort of refer to non-financial. Oh, this is financial, this is non-financial. Um, I think the reality is that everything that you're doing environmentally in your business at the moment and everything that you're doing socially has a financial benefit. It may not be measurable in the next 10 years, but it will be over the next 30 or 40 and we need to ensure that we're, we're thinking thinking about, you know, both of those, the consequences of not thinking about 30 to 40 today, as we talked about at the beginning of this of this call, uh, are, quite, are quite catastrophic. And so, you know, that's why we need to we need to ensure that we're getting we're getting that, you know, our thinking in that in that in that way. Well, a couple of things too, as we wind to, <clears throat> to a close on this, so we could talk for a long time, but let's just focus on a couple of more things, right? So one is around, uh, I want to talk about, um, it's very clear to me, when, when, again, I'll go back a bit to go forward. When, when I first met you, the, the thing was striking about Lendlease in Britain then, and then you, to be fair, uh, I remember asking the local authorities and the government, why was it that we had picked Lendlease, an Australian company, to do the Olympics, apart from the fact you'd done the Sydney Olympics and knew what you were doing. Uh, but, you know, was there another reason? The answer is, Nobody else had been doing big city projects in, in England. We, we, there weren't that many. You know, we, we didn't have people of comparable experience, not really. But then the second thing was, it was clear when you started coming out of the turf and talking to these London local authorities, Dan, that, you know, they could see that you gave a damn, you know, that, the, uh, that there was a combination of, like, you know, commercial smarts, because it's Lendlease, together with Lendlease's, to be fair to Lendlease, uh, a historical tradition of thinking about community, thinking about environment, and you brought some of that uh, to the table, but also your personal values. And I'm not just saying this, you know, you know I've known you long, long enough to know that you do that, and you are, and anybody listening to this can tell that you're, you've got your head screwed on in terms of what you need to deliver, but you also want to have a, you have a, you have a notion in your head of the value that can be created that is both commercial and, to use your colleagues' terms, non-commercial, but essentially it's about creating value, right? And why not create five different kinds of value instead of one if you can do them all, right? So I think I think that's great, right? But where do these values come from? Is what I want to I want to go to at the to the end of this, right? So uh, you are, and I also want to talk about the because we we've, nobody else could I talk to this about, but the Australian British thing has become interesting again, and 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 you are you know a symbolic presence in our in our in in both camps, right? So. Do you think, let's do that simple thing first, do you think the Australian-British relationship is going to get more interesting over the next few decades, partly because of Brexit and partly because of the, yeah. you know, the trade yeah. relationship? Yeah, I think, it's a great, I think it's a wonderful relationship. And one of the things I'm very proud of is the, 
the British Australian relationship, Australian British relationship. It's something that I've, you know, think is is wonderful. And um, and you know, yeah, I, th I think there's a history and there's a, a yeah, just a connectedness that is that is yeah. very special, very special. And I notice also that uh, quite a lot of people who uh, have done because I married one of them who is an Aussie planner in in London. You know that the they brought a lot of now about this big city stuff. Interestingly, to a lot of local authorities in London, but also, I think that a number of the ones that went back to Australia from the British experience helped bring kind of lots of new stuff uh, as well to Australia. So I think it's been a very fertile interrelationship, and long may it continue. So I, I but I am going to drill a bit deeper before we go to close. But so Dan, you know, you're you're from Sydney originally. And you you care, I know you do, and you think about it a lot. You've got family in in Fairfield in Sydney and all over Sydney, no doubt. But, you know, essentially, you know Sydney really well. And we've all been through this great kind of crisis together. God willing, we're all going to emerge uh, kind of okay. Um, but your journey, uh, you know, you, you, you were in Lendlease from Fairfield. You then, you know, when you first met me, you said, Tim, where are you from? And I said, Fairlight. And you said, Fairfield and Fairlight are very different very different places. So I think I kind of understand that. But you, you then run the Hornery uh, Institute and then you went to the UK. So how would you describe your journey? As, as we go to an end, you bring values with you, you've discovered something that you didn't know abroad. Are you the same person as you were when you, when you, you know, wh who are you, Dad, these days? Who are you? You're very experienced. You're very international. What, what, what do you think? What do you think about these questions? I'm fascinated by them. I, you know, I don't even know where to start. You know, I, I grew up. I grew up on the Horsley Drive. Grew up on the Horsley Drive. Well, first, first in Fairfield West, then on the Horsley Drive in Smithfield. I went to Prussian Brothers Fairfield, um, where I did my HSC, um, and um, I got into university by the skin of my teeth, as you know. You know, because I got environment entrance exam to University of Western Sydney did my first year of engineering and then moved to the to, to UTS in Sydney and got an engineering degree um, <clears throat> I think you know to the two-minute version is I have a fantastic family who um, taught me my values that I, that I inherited my values from um, my parents my grandsides my, my father came to Australia when he was 20 he's Egyptian um, my mother, a bit when she was a bit younger, she's Italian, um, and uh, I spent a lot of time growing up with my Italian grandparents because my Egyptian grandparents weren't in Australia; they're in Egypt still, um, even though I knew them and and you know again draw a lot of strength from them. And and my values come from all of those people. You know, they were good. You know, my grandparents were good people. Uh, they had very little, but they gave a lot, um, and and that's the foundation of of who I am. Uh, it's the foundation of the of the social justice I feel, you know, in, in in growing up, seeing very smart people not be given a fair go. I believe in everyone being given a fair go. It's what drives my passion for diversity is giving everyone a fair go. Um, and then and then and then uh, some luck, you know. I I, I found my way to Lendlease, um, and. be who I was with all the, all the ideals and passion and survive in an organisation that needed to be very commercial says a lot about Lend-Lease. Um, I was given, you know, yes, I brought those things to the places you talked about, as do a lot of young people in Lend-Lease, but I was allowed to. That's a big thing. I was allowed to. 
Um, I, was, I was set free in the UK and I was allowed to do my thing, you know, uh, and that says a lot about an organisation. Uh, you know, that, that's Dictus coming through, you know, it's, it's what, you know, the power of culture, the power of, you know, that type of gift that he gave the organisation. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to do a 22-year apprenticeship there, um, you know, and, and what Lemlease has done around the world, I think is fantastic. It really, really is. Um, uh, and, um, and, and then I was able to, as I met, I guess a couple, as I met other, as I met people who were, who were older and successful, I could see that they had, they shared my curiosity and they shared my um, willingness to ask questions. And I still ask dumb questions uh, to this day. Um, you know, and I've never gotten to, I will never get myself to a place where I think I have all the answers. The answers come from all over the place. And I've talked about that a lot before. And the other thing is this, um, what the, 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 the international travel that I've had the fortune to do over 15, 20 years and work and do business in all parts in the US and in, in, in Asia and in Europe and in Australia, where you deal with so many cultures, you know, it's taught me that people are the same, you know, that they, they, they want to be loved, they want to be valued, they want to be respected. Um, and we, we, you know, this sort of human, human trait of judgment versus an ability we also have to transcend difference and see the beauty in difference. And we, you know, the first is a reaction, it's a survival instinct. The other is what's make, what makes us human. And, and it, it, it's taught me to fight for that. And in fact, when young people say to me, well, what's your career advice? I keep saying, you know, learn to transcend difference, train those muscles, see the beauty in difference. You know, I saw growing up in my household in Smithfield, you know, with, with an Arabic Italian family in an Anglo setting. Um, and, you know, you see that, you see that same thematic around, around the world and, and there, there is beauty in all that difference. And that's what makes the world go around and that's what the world needs. And I don't want to end on that philosophical esoteric point, but when you bring it down to the basics of people being kind to each other and working on shared challenges like climate change, um, you know, that's, that's what we need more of. So I'm going to end there because I'm going to say to you that I don't think it was an esoteric philosophical end on i think it's the fundamental approach that you bring to everything that you do and what i think we learn and i think you're optimistic about going forward is that that kind of thinking and the kind of respect that we've shown people and had to show people and the kind of collaboration between public private and community we've seen over the last 18 months uh, is necessary and it's not something that, that we either of us hopes just goes away it's going to be fundamental to building the next phase not just of our city's recovery but i think of our communities recovery of which we're both optimistic but i do think these values will be required to make it work and the last thing i wanted to say was every time i talk to you i learn something new and every time i talk to you i go away a bit more optimistic than before so stick at it and uh, and listen to this podcast when it's broadcast thanks tim thank you hope to see you soon excellent thanks dan You've been listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.